Hi, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Agile Coffee Podcast. I am your host, Vic Bonacci. You can reach me on Twitter at Agile Coffee. Agile Coffee. Welcome to another episode of the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode 49, and I am fulfilling one of my New Year's goals, which was to record an episode online. So this is a virtual episode. We've got a few guests joining me on Skype tonight, going around the room virtually. Uh, Alan Daly. Hey there, Alan. Hi. How are you, Vic? Pretty good. Pretty good. Alan is on Twitter at Daily Agile, D-A-Y-L-E-Y. Zach Boniker. Hi there, Zach. Hi, Vic. Zach is on Twitter at Zach Boniker. Brett Palmer. Hi, Vic. Brett underscore Palmer on Twitter. Uh, I am Vic Bonacci. You can reach me at Agile Coffee. So, guys, this is um, this is quite the treat to have us all together virtually. We've got a number of really great cards up on the board today, so uh, let's open up the Trello board. Up at the very top, we say, is quality assurance an inhibitor to developing with agility? Quality assurance in the traditional sense, manual testers, test scripts, things like that, um, is a quality assurance group or are QA testers, people who really associate and really love the idea of testing, um, are they inhibitors to developing with, with agility? Can we build agile teams uh, with, like I said, traditional quality assurance? I, I would say yes and no. Um, number one... I think a lot of people who are testers um, think very differently about the way the software is, the way it should be built. Um, I think it's a mistake to not have someone who is a tester, e either by title or by trade, if you will, by skill. Um, you need to have testers around. Uh, they think very differently than developers. Um, when I think of QA, I often think of not just manual testing, but it tends to be um, the word assurance is what bothers me many times because it tends to be something you do after mm. at the end of everything. Like it's, they're supposed to assure that the quality is there. Um, and that's just simply a mistake to do all your quality checks at the end. Quality should be happening clear back before code is even written. Um, and so... In agility, if you want, to, want agility, you've got to move that that quality assurance function or idea mm. needs to be way earlier in the process. It needs to be part of writing the story, writing acceptance criteria, and yeah. and the process of building building whatever you're creating instead of waiting to try and assure it at the end. Yeah. yeah we, what about team? What What about teams that decide to? And and it's also it's interesting that 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 you mentioned the semantics of assurance, right? I, yeah. I've often thought about that. What if you could change the word quality something uh, as part of inclusion on a team to encourage the idea that maybe we're more of like the consultant <laughs> and the advisor on quality, not necessarily the endpoint assurance. Uh, mm. I think that's that's an awesome point. But what about what about teams that are interested in in building quality into their technical practices? Then maybe even starting to replace the idea of needing to have that that testing afterwards. A uh, team that wants to start using TDD, for example, uh, does that put pressure? Does that threaten uh, a QA tester? Does that make them want to resist it? I, I see it as um, 
not just a tester problem. It's it's really a full team problem. If you are moving testing further ahead, as Alan says, even as far as the product owner is concerned, writing good acceptance criteria uh, in collaboration with the team, you're putting the onus now on the full team to take on that testing responsibility. Um, so while I, I also applaud the um, the semantics of the word assurance there, you're not any longer throwing it over a wall, you know, as it were, to to a person or a job role to assure. But but now you're you're giving that to the team. You're spreading the testing out through the team. And, and that's a mindset change not only for anyone with the job title as quality assurance, but, but really it should be anyone. If anything, it empowers, I believe, people in a typical testing relationship because now they could say, hey, stop giving me all this crap. <laughs> let me let me work with you, yeah. do some exploratory testing, some peer design, uh, some peer code design, you know, function up front. Uh, let's talk about TDD and other practices. Let's get IT guys involved and talk about DevOps and continuous and automation. Um, might be a lot for a single person to ask for all at once, but but just that discussion is what's vital. As an inhibitor to agility, <clears throat> I have I I've experienced that the testers are the people who most easily fall into a silo on a team. Um, if a team is at a state where they like to decompose tasks up front and it's very you know well-defined up front, I have observed that testers tend to sit back and just assume that they're going to test because I'm a tester. Hmm. It can be hard to break that mindset, whereas developers will typically, again, and maybe, maybe your experiences vary, but for me, um, they've been a little more eager and maybe even more curious to say, sure, I can help with testing too and I can really be you know this, this whole team effort. Testers, to me, have always felt very siloed. Um, so have you seen that? And if so, how do you break that? How do you encourage people to participate? So, Zach, I have seen that. But I think, though, to Vic's point, if you get people uh, involved up front um, earlier in the sprint, maybe even as you migrate towards TDD, I would think that they would have work to do. They wouldn't be sitting around because they're trying to understand that work that's being, you know, talked about or at least initially started by that coder. So I, I would think that they would take a more proactive role at that point. Uh, certainly you don't want um, your testers to be sitting around waiting to be reactive. So the, the vision that I tried to share, and it takes a, some conversation to get there. I, I agree with you, Zach, in that many times, Similar to say middle managers, or there are other or other people with other titles that Agile doesn't talk about titles, right? And they say, "Here's three roles on a Scrum team. If you're doing Scrum, and and hey, wait a minute, my role's not there. Where was you know? There's this fear of change and being eliminated. Um, what you want to try and do is is describe the journey of improved testing that will take place, so that the tedious, repetitive just stupid mind-numbing work that many QA people have to do can go away because we're going to automate that and we're going to cover with unit testing. We're going to cover with the appropriate levels of automated testing so that that tester can become a creative person applying creative information to the work and to the the uh, results that you're trying to get. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, so give them a vision, right? Give them... Give them an outcome, almost almost like we do with agile teams, right? We we talk about problems, asking people, you know, here's here's 
here's what we want and here's what we want to go to and this is why it's meaningful to you. Let's explore how you could do it. So maybe giving those people that vision and see what they could they can gravitate towards. That's cool. Yep. There we go. Next up Move we on. have uh, we have you are an experienced scrum master just joining a new and dysfunctional team. What is your first goal? Alan, is this yours? It's it's just interesting to me as I've watched as an agile coach and I've seen scrum masters being placed or stepping into uh, and a difficult situation. Uh, and, you know, uh, the things that they might choose to do when they get started with a new team are fascinating to me. Um, and Brett's, Brett's saying he wants to talk. So before I start throwing my ideas out, I want to hear others, which is why I asked the question, right? So if I was brought in as a scrub master to a new and dysfunctional team, what would I do? I would first level set on what agile is, what agility is. I would talk about the agile manifesto, the principles and the scrum guide as our compass for the, uh, for the different range of what is moving towards agile and moving away from agile. And then at that point, I would also assess what training the different people have had up to that point to see, you know, who, who is on the team and, and what their level of formal training has been. Um, and then I would take a look at trying to understand what is the actual dysfunction. I try to maybe um, maybe do some some exploratory conversations in some kind of a retrospective or just maybe one-on-one -on -one interviews with people as I would try to get you know used to who, what this project is and what this team is like, maybe meet people one-on-one -on -one individually and just try to get a sense of you know who's who's doing what and what you know how they perceive things to to be going and then i would you know come back and you know put together some notes maybe do some affinity mapping and then you know talk to the team about ways that we might be able to kind of figure out where we might want to go from there so so first of all i'm 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 under the impression i mean because the first thing i'm going to do with the team is i'm just going to want to i'm, I'm going to tell them please you know carry on. <laughs> I need to see what's going on, right? right? So you said this is a dysfunctional team. So I'm, I'm assuming there's been some period of observation and, and getting, you know, getting an understanding of what's happening, like where, where we may be interested in. Mm -hmm. So I mean, first thing I'm going to do, obviously, observe. Um, but no, be, before I even get into to actions or even trying to explain Agile or Agile done well or my vision of Agile and all these things... Um, so the first thing that, that I'm really going to emphasize on with, with new teams that I, that I work with is really going to be about relationships. Um, I want to get to know who they are. I want them to know me. I want them to know that they can trust me. I'm not there to tell them what to do. I'm not there to, you know, to break out a whip. I'm not there to talk about velocity and freak everyone out. And I just want to know what they're feeling, you know, what, what they feel about their team, their team members, the system of work. And I want to know what they need. What do they need? What you know? What what sort of things do they feel that that they're lacking or that they're they're longing for? Allow those relationships to start to build, so that they know that they can trust me. Um, and from there, as I start to introduce topics and doing talks like my vision of agile done well, what agile means to me, I'm hoping that because I put the effort up front uh, for them to know me and know that they can trust me, that they'll listen a little more deeply. Um, that they'll they'll maybe take me more seriously in the sense that they know that I'm really trying to attend to their needs also. Um, so for me, the idea of relationships is is far more important 
than any dysfunction or behaviors or any ways of working that a lot of people I know, you know, with that, just, oh, that's, that's not what you do. You should be doing this, not that. I'm not so worried about that. I, I first want them to know who I am and know that they can trust me. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll chime in there. Um, I don't disagree with anything that actually either you or Brett have said. Um, I think that, I think that relationship building and observing and, and, and getting a level set, those are all like really key things, but it's all situational. So, so when you say, Alan, when you propose, you know, what do you, what do you do when you just join a new and dysfunctional team? Okay. What's the nature of the dysfunction? Got it. And, and where are they? What, what's the situation? Are we just kind of coasting along or is there, you know, are there fires going on around us? Are we under some kind of, um, you know, external pressure outside of the team or is it just the team is, is fine. It's just, we've got a dysfunction that we have to work on. Yeah. What, what do you do is you kind of assess everything that you guys have said, you build relationships and you kind of get an assessment of, um, what are the needs, um, in relation to the outside system. Yeah, that's all very good. I I appreciated the answers. And in my mind, I was going after the, the relationship kind of angle but I enjoyed Brett's um, emphasis on the Agile ideas, right? The Agile Manifesto. Um, I think it's just important that if a team is already dysfunctional, you can't come in and be the bad cop or come in and be the enforcer, right? Because you immediately lose credibility and they're just, you're not, not going to get very far. So that's, and that's what I've seen happen. You know, a good scrum master comes in and goes, you guys are estimating wrong, you know, and, and then they wonder why, you know, three spins later, they haven't had very much effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can safely say that that phrase has never come out of my mouth ever. <laughs> You're not <laughs> estimating right or estimating well. It was probably yeah. like, God, I think we should stop estimating. But anyways. <laughs> that's, that's well, you only get yeah. to be a, a good coach by having those, you know, by failing in, in situations similar to this. So maybe if you're a young coach, that's the best thing that can happen. Uh, other than like stumbling into a team with no dysfunction, <laughs> um, yeah. get in there and now make the, make a mistake. As, try as something. A segue, just if we're going to wrap up on on this card as a segue, yeah. just you know for people who may be listening on this one, um, that was exactly the lesson that I learned when I first started. Is I yeah. came in as in thinking I was an expert and and doing a lot of talking, and then realizing that was really not working so well at all. The key was really about listening to people, and and that's you know in, in practicing how to listen and and getting to realize how powerful it is to listen to people that's what made me realize you know maybe it really is about relationships especially to, to start right so all right so how about you are you an experienced scrum master who has joined a dysfunctional team what are your first steps let us know use the hashtag tell agile coffee and become part of the conversation our next card up says falling off the cliff scenarios i think this was my card in fact no it was my card i don't have to think about it it really was um Okay, falling off the cliff, right? We, we want to let teams experiment. We want to let people experiment. Sometimes it's okay if they want to try something and you know it's a little questionable. Eh, I don't know if that's you know, really going to speak to what you're looking to achieve, but that's okay because they're going to learn from it, right? But what are the scenarios where an, an agile team could be falling off the cliff to where you have to step in as a coach, a scrum master, whatever your role is, and step in and say, you can't do that. You can't do that. I won't allow it. I have to be firm yet gentle, um, and in in some of these things that that in discovering agile, that's just a direction that we can't allow a team or a person to go. What might those mm-hmm. scenarios look like? I'm trying not to be too obvious and say um, 
like my mind goes to like production systems, something that like is damaging the um the integrity of of our product online and will create customer uproar and and you have the key you can stop it <laughs> i don't know if that's too realistic but but that's where my mind is going in terms of you need something pretty catastrophic to be able to jump in and say no let's not do that because it's not worth the learning that we can get otherwise so there's there's a few scenarios that i've seen or can imagine some i've seen well let's go with what i've seen uh, so let's say you have a team that you know they're five six seven sprints in um, they have plenty of so-called experience and they, they they have yet to deliver you know even 50 percent of what they planned in a sprint and and all the way up to some high level of executive they're saying you guys have to deliver something you've got to deliver something because we need it um, in that sort of situation where there's lots of pressure high visibility and a team that's floundering then I I can or I do take a directive stance where I'm going to say, look, this is a way that we can actually produce something that people want to see. So we're going to do it this way. And often the scenario that I'm thinking of is a team where they would start all the stories at once and, and maybe one or two would finish at the end, but everything was always in flight and always rolling over. And so in that situation, I would say, look, you get to plan one story, one user story. And and when you get that user story done, we will plan another user story. And when you get that one done, we'll plan another user story. And people were complaining that they were idle all the time. And I would point out, well, last sprint, you weren't idle and you still didn't produce anything. Um, you say that in a kind way, but anyway. Um, the point being that sometimes you have to create a system or a scenario where some measure of success or something that solves the defect solves the dysfunction temporarily um, or enlightens them somehow, sometimes you do have to be directive and you can't just sit back and wait. And so scenarios that are like that are ones where the team is failing, they're going to get fired anyway, or um, they're going to do something that is disastrous to the production system, like Vic said, or they're going to do something that I know is going to piss off the VP, or they're going to, uh, you know, they're on a path that, that sabotages other teams um, these are situations where I might step in and be more directive and more controlling, as it were, uh, as a coach. Yeah, the the couple examples that have come to me recently, um, I'd say in the last year, one is, well, we tried retrospectives, and it was before I was there, and they weren't working for us. And so, so we're just, you know, we're not going to do them. And and maybe later when we find a reason to, but no, we're we're not going. That that to me is that's a falling off the cliff. You know the idea I, of like, I, Zach, I, I, Zach, I agree. I've had that exact same scenario happen to me many times. So I totally agree. If to be firm, firm yet unwavering in that one, that's a falling off the cliff for me. Abandoning inspection, no. It's not gonna be. Um, another one here recently was. Um, what we want to do is we want to have our work because we feel comfortable with the idea of work being assigned. So we'd like to have our work assigned to us by this team member. And that team member can then have one-on-ones with us throughout the sprint to check in with us and tell us how, how we're, you know, how we're working. And, and I, yeah, just like I said, that's, that's an, 
It's an interesting solution to a problem I'm not quite sure I understand yet. But just from a pure behavior standpoint, I, I, I can't, can't let that happen. You can't, can't have it turn into a, a place where your work is assigned to you and then you, you use a mechanism to check in with the person to continue to tell you what to do. That's just going to become a bottleneck on a single person. You know, and that's and yeah, that that was one that we had to to eliminate. I mean, I think there's probably hundreds, thousands, millions of possible scenarios, but those are those are two that came up recently, real real team examples um, that you know for me just completely falling off the cliff. There there are certain principles of agile ideas, not necessarily principles of the manifesto, but even those uh, things like transparency, things like uh, small iterative steps, stuff like that, where. And it depends on the context of the team, right? If this team, there's there's all kinds of things involved in this sort of choice to be directive. Um, but in, in general, it falls, for me, it falls back to those principles. If somebody says, yeah, we're failing, but we're not going to tell anybody, or, you know, other things like that where they're violating those core principles of Agile, then then those are situations where I might step up and, and point out that that's not a good idea. Yeah. I had a, I had a team a couple years ago that said, you know, it's just so much easier if we work, we'll just, we'll develop in a sprint Mm -hmm. and then the tester people can test in a sprint. And then we'll just have this nice flow, this really nice synergy. We'll have these handoffs from sprint to sprint and what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Falling off the cliff. I can't allow that one either. So yeah, there's, there's another real one. That was, that, that's not okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think that brings us to the end. Let us know if you have any falling off the cliff stories. I like that one. Um, and it fits on Twitter nicely at hashtag tell Agile coffee. Uh, next up we have the director says plan for more plan for more points. That is the director says plan for more points in your next sprints or we won't get all this work done. That's never happened to me. So, so that's one that yeah. I put in. And- yeah, yeah. Um, it's a challenge. It's a challenging situation, as you can imagine, with a director who is, you know, in the management chain for most of the people on the team, and is in the management chain for a large program, and basically steps up and says, "Your velocity is not high enough. We're planning a release. We got to get all this done. Um, you know, plan for more." Yeah, and is the team allowed to double their point estimates? And just call it good. <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting. You know, mm. maybe not double because that would be too obvious, but mm. you could just, you know, increase it by 20%. Yeah. Um, all the fives become eights, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, so let, me, let me check in with you first before we yeah. get into mm. what, to what we would do. Mm. When when I hear this this scenario, for me, the the systemic cause is not at the level that this conversation is happening, right? It's mm. much further upstream. Right. So... Do you treat the symptom here? Try to try to get the team to cope with what's mm. going on? Or would you put your effort into trying to systemically <laughs> solve this issue? Can it can it even be done in this moment? Yeah, so what that sounds like to me is that the management's very you know, under pressure, very theory X approach. It could it could be theory X. It could be that we've we're also we've kind of you know, distorted whatever novelty velocity may provide us. You know, we've we've turned it into, you know, a, a target. We're we're letting yeah. Goodhart's law run wild here. Um, so, you know, again, is is it is it something that we should just try to put in place to maybe cope for now, 
or do you dive right in to try to tackle again really where this dysfunction is? Well, I think it's it's some kind of a mix, and it's probably more having that conversation with the director, and and talking through what is you know what is the goal and what maybe what do sprint points mean, and we can suggest other metrics that might be more probably more applicable, like a backlog burn-up chart or something like that, which would maybe help say this is how far we are toward a goal or toward, you know, the work that's said to be done. But, you know, when you talk about velocities and getting more sprint points done, um, you know, that doesn't seem like the right measure to be using at all. So, so, so Alan, oh, go, go ahead, Alan, go ahead. Oh, so, well, I just, um, the question that you raised, Zach, is a good, good one um, because, you know, the context is everything. And I, the more I coach, the more I realize context is everything. Um, and so in the moment when this is happening, maybe it's not the appropriate time to do too much. Um, maybe it is the appropriate time to, you know, personally myself, right? You would raise, I have in these situations, tried to solve it in the moment, tried to get a, a, an acquiescence out of the director or whoever's demanding this. Um, but often it takes more conversations than that because you've got to go find that root cause. And, and generally, you can't, most directors, most senior managers, if you will, uh, don't take too kindly with contradiction by some outsider uh, in the middle of a planning session. Um, so if you want to really solve the issue instead of just put a veneer over it, you've got to go do more than just act in the moment. Um and and it, and it tends to do tends to be about direct addressing the pressures that are on that person. What what is the reason behind his request or her request? Yeah. How do you address those needs? So let's mm-hmm. say that the director said that. Well, you know, this team has traditionally, even before we moved to agile Scrum, you know, even even back in the past, this team has missed deadlines and. We've now, you know, been, you, you know, in, in jeopardy of losing our funding or losing this particular portion of budget allocation for next year if we don't hit these milestones, yada, yada, yada. So, so I'm, I'm in, in hearing this, I'm, you know, in hearing that scenario, Brett, I'm, I, I'll just fall back on, on, and, <laughs> And it's horrible because I can never remember who attributed this quote to it, if it's Deming or Drucker. But anyways, uh, it's the idea that a stable system, it doesn't make any sense to plan for a stable system because it can produce only what it's capable mm-hmm. of producing. And if your system is unstable, it doesn't make any sense to plan for it either because you, you know, who knows what you're going to get, right? You could get 20 or you could get 50. Who knows? It's unstable. So... In this context, you know, in, in Alan, you bringing up this this scenario. If the team is, you know, mature, has been together for a while, and and over an extended period of time has demonstrated a velocity of fifty, right? And the director says we're going to need to do seventy to get it done. I, okay, okay, but they can do fifty. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what asking them to do more is, is is going to do. But if it's a new team. If it's a new team and it's unstable, they're learning, they're up and down, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you, do, do you think you even try it? Sure. Sure, we'll do that. We'll just go ahead and plan for 70 and we'll see what happens. And then expose the learning back on that experience, back to the person who made that. Could that actually, could you actually use that 
as a uh, as a learning mechanism. I don't know. Right. So if you have a team that's accustomed to doing fifty, now you've asked them to do seventy. What are they going to do in order to do seventy? If you force that upon them, they'll cut corners. They'll start hard coding and drop downs. Code quality will go down. You know. Yeah. Well, so, so in a stable team, yeah, I agree. Right. Yeah. So again, if 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 we've got this team that's been consistently doing 50, so to speak, whatever 50 is, mm-hmm. and it's like year data, cool. And we say, you know what? They got to do 70. Again, they can do 50. I, I you know, you're, exactly. You're right. But what if it's the team's, I don't know, third sprint working together? They've only been doing this for six weeks or so or a month or two, whatever. And, and this demand comes in. Could you actually use it? Could you, would that be, would that be horrible as a coach to say, sure, why don't we do that? And then expose the learning of all the things that we know are going to happen as maybe amplifying the impact to the maybe. director. Maybe, maybe even encouraging him to potentially change. I, I don't know. What do you think? You could, you could do that, Zach. I, I've done a similar sort of thing. Um, I guess we're voting now. Um, I, yeah, we have, to, we have to have more conversation with that person. And we have to say, look, this, person, this team can only do 50, so what are you, director, going to do to help them do 70? What are you proposing to help them? And that's part of the conversation. Anyway. What do we have here? It says, common problem. The team does not update their progress on tasks and user stories in the electronic tool. So? So that, again, is one of mine um, where it's just something I see over and over again that, you know, we're supposed to update our remaining hours on tasks. We're supposed to move stories from, you know, whatever our path is from not started to started to done and nobody moved it to done. Um, what do we do about that? Is that important? Is it not important? If it is important, why is it important? And how do we help the team see that it's important? Um, in in, in my experience, when I've seen this, um, the tool is serving the needs, not of the people doing the work. So I, I bring that to people's attention. You know, tools, tools should enable our success, not be a burden on our success. And so if they're not updating it, there's a reason for it. They don't need to. I, I mean, unless they're not getting work done and things are all over the place, then, okay, maybe we need to have a little bit more discipline in, in being transparent, right? Um, but assuming that the team is actually working and doing things, and they're always lagging behind, and they're updating things late, and we don't get that, the tool mm-hmm. is not serving their needs. So mm-hmm. they don't, they're not finding the value in it. And I think that's an important conversation to have with people outside of the teams. Yeah, I think visibility, going back to you know making things transparent and having um, the visibility into what's getting done. If, if there's any question about visibility, that's when you say, okay, do we need to use the tool? Do we need to use index cards, stickies on a wall, something like that to indicate um, – you know who's doing what, what's what's in progress, what ne- needs help, uh, where the impediments are, that type of thing. But for the most part, I think Zach, I would agree. If your team is functioning to the point where they can get work out and be pretty consistent about it, um, and they're not updating every task, you know, at the end of the day or the beginning of the day or right when they do it, they might be waiting. Um, yeah, is it getting in the way? Is it a hindrance? So I I kind of take the devil's advocate approach on this. I I kind of beg to differ on this. From beg away, beg away. Yeah, from from the standpoint that if you are running a scaled approach where you've got multiple teams that are running concurrent sprints and you've got 
let's say a tool like Rally or version one, and you've got custom reports that allow you to be able to see trends and forecasting, um, that data that's collected at the team level is really going to be helpful later on as you do your next planning and forecasting activities. And so for a, a team to just not update their actual hours or, or not update, you know, their, their tasks. Yeah. I mean, I see it, you know, I see your perspective, Zach and Vic, but when you are um, at a, at a perspective where you're trying to get metrics from the program level to be able to do forecasting and planning, that to me would present a challenge at that point. So, so part of the challenge, and I agree with, Everybody, <laughs> can, can I live on the fence? Um, so uh, part of the challenge is helping the team to uh, see the value to them of doing this, right? So maybe the scrum master or the coach or whoever it might be, if the whole program is not doing this or whatever it is, somehow you have to create uh, a reason for them to want to see the data, to understand how the data is valuable to them, to the team. Um, and sometimes that might mean going back to the cliff thing where we have to be somewhat directive and get them because they can't see how valuable the data is if they don't ever create the data. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where you say, hey, team, let's do an experiment this sprint. Let's let's enter all our data in. You know, when can we do that every at least every day? When is a good time? Right. And hold each other accountable to that. And so that we can then begin to see that data and see if it's useful to us. When you say hold Maybe each we, other accountable, are you saying the Scrum Master is going to nag everyone? Scrum Master has free movie tickets or something. You do, a, you do a work agreement. So you do a work agreement and you stick it on the wall. You stick it on your, you know, your SharePoint page, whatever it is, and um, realize that everybody should be peer-to-peer expecting certain behavior. And that's what it is. Hmm. I, I agree, but I'm uncomfortable. Why am I uncomfortable? I'll, I'll tell you why. No, so why am I uncomfortable right now? Okay. So I'm uncomfortable. So, so why I agree? Let's go, let's go to the easy part first. So I agree because the idea of attending to needs is important, I believe. And, you know, Brett, in your example of, hey, I need these program level, me- you know, m- the program metrics and the reports and the things that, that- awesome. I believe that those are meaningful. <clears throat> I've also experienced situations where those same metrics were very much held as a were despised by teams because even though the program and everyone above saw the value for the teams, it was like, you know, they were like a, a, a an abuse, a, a torture tool. You know, they were they were used to, you know, to drive the motivation and to get and teams hated it. Right. So it wasn't attending to their needs, even though there was this perceived value. So coming back to saying I agree, it goes back to Alan talking about, hey, how can we get a shared understanding or, or at least a shared perception of value for the things that, that we do? And it's why I think tools are essential to serve the people using them. Right. So in, Brett, in your case, if it is a valuable thing at the program and teams are struggling with it, what other ideas might, might we have? Maybe we need to, instead of just force teams to do the thing we want, maybe we need to find a middle ground and start taking steps. Maybe we need to get bring them along to that journey. Um, <clears throat> but why am I uncomfortable right now? I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe I'm just uncomfortable with the idea of, um, of, of, of the tools and the things that, that we use to help teams be successful. Uh, God, just to me, sometimes just don't feel like they're really suited for teams, <laughs> you know, it feels like all the conversation is outside of 
of really where the real value is. You know, if if the teams disappeared on that day, your program would stop. But hey, without your metrics, that value, that real value that customers need would keep moving. You know, and, and I know that that doesn't mean that you just abandon them. But there's that sense of discomfort where that that's a real truth in our system of work. And again, if we're going to use systems thinking, especially when you start talking about programs where it's important to really use systems thinking, I think some of these concepts become pretty important. So anyways. Yeah, so but I value all your input, and I think you're all great people. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you touched on Zach. You know, one of the difficulties that I have with these sorts of problems is, for example, you know, White is a director who's one or two or three levels of management up from the team need to know whether or not a task got done today. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. They don't. They don't need to know, but they often want to know. Yeah. Um, and so there's there. There is a, a balance and a conversation to have here about what really is valuable in the tool and who is it valuable for, and does a director need to be spending their time whether or not knowing whether or not this Wednesday story A or story B got done? Uh, they they probably don't need to know to that detail. They probably need to know at the end of the sprint something about it. But um, so you know, it, tools are not as and metrics by by extension or what we're talking about here, we're talking about metrics, you know, they can be used for good or evil. And they're so use they're so you, they're so easy to use for evil by default. Yeah. To, to misuse. Right. Yeah. yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to be evil with them, but right. they end up being that way. Um, and so it's great to have this conversation about what metric is really valuable to you, Mr. Director or Mr. Program Manager. Um, is it really that valuable for you to know that there's, 250 hours left in this sprint from these three teams. Right. Um, maybe there's a different level of information that's more valuable to you. Is there a utopia here? Is there a utopia? Is there a place where where teams could be updating tools and, and contributing to metrics and reports and feel that that's an important thing for them to do? It really I mean, it's something that they believe in that, that is an important activity for them to do on a daily, weekly, whatever the basis is. Can that can that happen? And if you've ever seen it, what what was the thing that enabled it? What what was the driver? I, I've only seen it a few times, and it wasn't me that created it. So I I didn't have that conversation at that end of your question there as to what drove it. I I know one team, for example, that was tracking time spent and time remaining to the half hour, <laughs> and found it. That was something that they themselves chose to do without managers even caring or even looking at it, but they themselves chose to do that for a while as an experiment. And for a while, they found it useful to do to help them understand better how they were working and what they were spending time on. So, you know, it depends. So I, I recently took the Craig Larman large-scale Scrum certification course, and one of the things that was mentioned um, in it was this book by Robert D. Austin called measuring and managing performance in organizations. And basically what it's really saying is that metrics and the idea of tracking actually is a demotivator for teams. So, you know, so, I mean, I totally, I totally get it. Um, you know, I, I totally get where this is a kind of a tricky context-based um, discussion. Yeah. Yeah. But if that's the truth and, mm -hmm. I, and, and, and we know it is, <laughs> then then how do we shift our mindset into 
you know, again, the idea that teams aren't updating the tools, so we're not getting our metrics. How do we shift it to a different place, you know, I, to where it's more shared understanding? I, I think it's really this this uh, notion of shuhari, you know, and, a, and and you have to take into consideration the context and the culture and what kind of organization you're in and what personalities the management style is and, you know, and look, in, look to where you can get the easy wins and pick and choose your battles. And I think it's a combination of all these things. Yeah, it goes to the maturity of the team, too. And it's it's team dependent. And and situa- and the context is dependent, too, as Ellen says. Um, I, I was chiming in earlier. Um, I've got a team like that now. I've got a team that they don't even – they do planning with hours. They don't do it with story points quite as much. And they don't track their hours. They don't – they might do some tasking, but really they when it comes down to it, they just always pull in six stories and and it's just hard to ex- explain like how they know it's always six stories, but if they pull in five if, if we try to temper them one time because we think some of the stories might be bigger, they pull in five, they still have time to pull in six if they pull in uh seven it, it's cutting it close and and they don't assign many story points they're kind of the the old one uh <laughs> and then what's the three letter acronym and the other <laughs> TFB for too big and <laughs> you know yeah. everything seems to be a small enough size anyway um they've got their work kind of sufficiently defined with the acceptance criteria with kind of the communication between the team they get along real well um and they could just pull in like a certain number of stories now they might think that they're using story points or hours but it kind of always comes down to that throughput of stories yeah. too they've they've reached the level of trust in the work amongst themselves and the relationship between them both where team members, they, they, they know what's small enough. They ask the question of, okay, is it small enough? Is it the right size for us? One of the keys is it's a very small team too. And and I I mean, I've, mm -hmm. I've experienced or I've observed that the same thing. Teams Mm -hmm. end up doing that. Yeah. They, they get good at, this is the right size for us. It's small enough. And it tends to be four per sprint or five per sprint or six, whatever it is, but it's their preferred size. I've seen the same thing. Yeah, the shift we want to make is, you know, uh, the the principle says uh, that working software is the primary measure of progress. Anything we measure other than working software value delivered is secondary or one step removed from that real value. And so we need to be careful about whatever metrics we're using that we're not turning that into the goal instead of the working software. Yeah, absolutely. All right, moving on. Our next card up says explaining coaching to a mentoring organization. So I, I, I rephrased this from Amber because it's not, I don't want to confuse any of that stuff um, to our conversation. We'll just, we'll just instead frame it as you're working with an organization that, that very, that, that places a high value in expertism. So when it comes to people that you bring in, they want fixers. They want people to tell people what to do. They want the expert opinion. They want somebody to come in and direct, right? So that, I guess I don't even know if I would – to me that's not mentoring, but let's just say it's closer to the idea of teaching and training and mentoring um, than coaching, which is very much by invite, by permission, um, in service of the person, agenda-free, discovery, growth, that sort of you know activity. So if you're being brought in – and you know the benefits of coaching and you know how empowering that can be with people. You've seen the effect both on people and teams. 
how do you sell or explain or or get the trust to bring coaching to an organization that that frankly it probably doesn't know what it is or hasn't hasn't experienced it what do you do great question good the only thought i have uh i recently gave a presentation for the first time in public um at agile arizona conference that happened uh on may 6th um so you can find go you can go find the deck somewhere on the on the agilearizona.org website but it's about uh leadership models and the title of the presentation is how you lead is what you get mm-hmm. uh, and so i i've tried to set up a model that says if if i am a supervisory type uh maybe like an expert right to borrow from five dis- or not five dis- from uh, the leadership agility book by joiner um but if I'm a supervisory type leader where I tell people what to do, I'm going to create laborers who won't do anything until they're told what to do. Yeah. Um, and then if I'm a, if I'm more of a, a, a more directive kind of a delegator type person, then I'm going to create people that will have some level of autonomy, but they're only going to act as I would have acted within what I delegated to them. Um, and, there's this whole spectrum that goes all the way up to somebody who is a catalyst and will create co-leaders to lead with them. And, and almost every organization talks about, we want employees who are entrepreneurial and self-starters and go-getters and all that stuff. And if your whole organization is experts and they expect you as a coach to be an expert and tell people what to do, they're not going to create those go-getters and those self-starters and those entrepreneurial people. It won't happen. And and so that's the story that I try to tell is is that story of how the leaders, the managers need to shift to help the employees shift. And then I go to the employees, the developers and the other people that are being supervised, if you will. And I say to them, look, if you keep behaving this way, then the manager will keep behaving this way, too. And and you won't you won't make the shift either because the manager has to match the needs of the people they're leading while trying to pull them up to the next level. Um, and and so it's a two-way street, right? If the people keep behaving like laborers, then managers are going to keep behaving that way too. And But it's on the managers to take that first step of trust. I should say the first step of the flip side of trust, which is vulnerability, right? Uh, take that first step of vulnerability to act differently on the hope or promise that the workers will start acting differently too and, and, and go to more self-organizational behavior. And that's, that's what I come as a coach. I say, as a coach, I'm trying to be the catalyst. Um, Mm. And I'll step down as I have to, but I'm trying, I'm, I come in wanting to be this catalyst up here. Oh yeah, Ellen. I think it's, um, I think it's great that you brought up the leadership agility uh, book, the Joiner book. Um, and and I'll have a link to not only the uh, this book, but also I'll put up a, a link to your presentation there as well. Uh, check out the show notes at agilecoffee.com forward slash episode 49. Uh, but getting back to the book, so you had mentioned the catalyst. And in, in the Joiner book, um, he actually is a co-author, uh, Joseph, Stephen Josephs. Uh, they they talk about um, really five five levels. <clears throat> and you, you kind of alluded to a few of them there. Um, but... Um, 
But I think that the book itself uh, is very systematic in that it talks about these five levels and even eight areas around different types of agility. You've got, uh, as I recall, context setting agility, um, some agility with stakeholders, agility, um, creative agility, and, and uh, self-agility, right? Um, and he says you can't it's, – it's based on stage development. You can't just jump from level one to level three. You must pass through level two on the way. But the book itself is, is very fundamental, um, not only to Zach's topic, but I think to my own path to servant leadership. I was, I guess I probably bought the book first, and then I ended up going to a uh, presentation by Tom Louie. I don't know if you know Tom. He used to work with uh, Big Visible. Yes. Um, and uh, this is in 2012, San Francisco, Agile, I think it was. Um, and we talked about it there together. We talked about a path to servant leadership, actually. Um, you know, saying, again, how what you just said, Agile – we're talking about, and in the book it says Agile is, or, or Tom's talk was about it, not so much in the book, but um, Agile itself being kind of a, a different paradigm for project management. The past was all about this command and control, but now with Agile it's more about empowering rather than dictating. We're creating these servant leaders. So in Joyner's model, first you had to become a leader um, or you became a leader typically because you were an expert in something, some type of an authority. You had authoritative power. And this is like 45% of, of the leaders that they surveyed were, were in this first category. And then next, you moved up into the next category, about 35% of people were achievers, which means you're more focused on how do we get stuff done. Uh, you're more strategic, uh, outcome-oriented. But you're still in what Joyner called this this heroic stage, right? And if you do the math, 45 and, and another 35%, that's like 80% or so of leaders are in this. And he says that beyond that, in the post-heroic stage is only about 10%. And the next the next step up is catalyst. And then there's another 10% on the other side of the bell curve that don't even get to the expert level at all. Um, so so once you move into the, the catalyst role, you're you're going from a heroic posture where you're more focused about me. Like I'm I'm really I'm the center of, of this action to more of a post-heroic phase where you're more of a, a servant leadership uh, taking that stance on, right? So it's it's definitely a shift, um, as you said. You're you're trying to get the workers to be um, to exhibit more self organizational behaviors, but again, as, as you're kind of leading us there, and, and the book and Tom Louis's uh, presentation was also saying that you know we can't change the culture without making the environment um, you know ready or, or safe or conducive to that change. And I think uh, for me, that's what a catalyst is all about. It, it, and it goes back to the, you could go out and find the, I don't if you do a Google search on change pyramid, you'll come up with a bunch of images of this. The idea that we often uh, think that we can change the organization by changing people's behavior. And to some extent that works, but the way to change culture is to change people's experiences so that they change their beliefs, which in turn changes their behavior. Um, and, and as a coach, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create experiences where people will experience something new that challenges their beliefs and that they will want to come along this change ride that I'm supposed to be creating because they've experienced a little piece of it. They've had a mm -hmm. little taste of it. Yep. Um, and then they can come along for the ride. So when I hear that, experiences to me seems like the next step of the environment or a new system so almost i don't know if we're going to go into 
to the idea of dissolution of a system. But so designing a new environment or a new system that can make a new experience possible, <laughs> leading to new behaviors. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Hmm. It's it's definitely a partnership. Uh, yeah, it it has to be right. I mean, I I experienced recently this conversation where the idea was shared that coaching is by permission, mm-hmm. right? So when people talk, uh, what was being discussed as coaching is really closer to managing, <laughs> you know, it's the expert direction given, you know, it, it, it wasn't coaching and coaching is by permission. It's by invitation. It's, it's, it's not a forced thing. It's a relationship thing. And, and, um, the but when you're for, go go ahead Brett. what i was just gonna say but when you're brought in as a you know as an outsider into an organization let's say to do coaching as an agile coach you're doing things other than just coaching of course and of so course. that's where you really have to kind of really understand what those um what 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 the organization is really needing from you and then to be able to really create that partnership yeah yeah, no, I think you're right. So that be so that way, if you know, if you're just doing pure coaching, you know, and you're just asking the team's questions, they, they might perceive that as not being hands on, right? And that might not be the right tactic for them. So you have to maybe try to understand a little bit about where you ro- where your role is 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 going to be most appropriate. Yeah, no, you no, you're you're right. The comment came back as well. If it's by invitation or if it's an opt-in thing what would we pay you for if you're going to do nothing yeah but but i mean i think that 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 really really goes to you know the beliefs of the people the system right so i i'm 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 still kind of exploring then if, if that's the reality of it and then going into alan talking about you know how you lead is what you get and really hearing modeling behavior Maybe you can't model that behavior because it will be perceived as, you know, not, not contributing. Hmm. But then Alan was explaining, kept talking about story, saying the story is the story. So maybe what I could do, though, is share or what we could do is, is, is share a lot of stories, experiences. You know, again, create visceral images through storytelling around people to maybe hmm. get curious about what you might try from a coaching perspective. So, so you can use... You can use when they're expecting you to be directive, to be the expert. You can use that as as a tool or the way that you create new experiences. Mm. In other words, oh, you want me to tell you what you do? Okay, tomorrow we're going to do a two-hour workshop on user story writing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take them into an experience of writing user stories, maybe about something fictitious, maybe I'll use their backlog. But I'm going to provide them an experience of what it really is to write a good story how you talk about it, how you split it, all those things. I'm going to give them that experience. And now I can go, okay, now let's go to sprint planning. Hey, remember that back there? Why don't we try that here? Right? And so I used my directive, the permission to be the expert, to create an experience, not to tell them what to do. And and that's the shift you want to make so that you can still look like what the organization expects you to look like, but you're really creating a catalytic situation yeah. at some level um, instead of just telling them, here's what you do. Yeah. That's good. That's, that's good stuff to think about right there, Al. Yeah. And on that note, tell agile coffee, if you are in the same situation where you have to explain what it is to be a coach to your organization, join us in the conversation. 
Uh, let's see, guys. I guess that brings us to about the end of our time box for tonight. Um, so if anyone has any any other words that they want to say at this point in time, anything going on that's coming up that we want to give a shout-out to, now would be a great time. Here in Phoenix, where I'm at, um, we have the Phoenix Scrum user group uh, with two meetings a month, and we're trying to figure out how to do more things like an Agile coffee or a Lean coffee in the mornings and things like that. Uh, PA, the website is phxsug.org, phoenixsug.org. And you can hear all about that information. Okay. Links to both of these events will be online at agilecoffee.com slash episode 49. All right. I want to thank once again my fabulous guests going around the virtual room tonight. We had Alan Daly, Zek Boniker, and Brett Palmer. Thanks a lot, guys, for being here today. Thank, thank you, guys. Much. It was great. Thanks, Vic. All right. That wraps us up tonight, so come on back next time for Episode 50. And meantime, enjoy your coffee with friends. Mm-hmm.